0: So first of all, last let me say I'm glad that we are giving airtime to a topic we rarely discuss. This is really good.
1: It is the week of April 5th, and welcome to Episode 74 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy.
2: Today we have Michael Gottlieb, NSI Visiting Fellow and former Associate Counsel and Special Assistant to the President, Jody Herman, former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI Founder and Executive Director and former Chief Counsel and Senior Advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and I'm Grant Haver, Policy Program Manager here at NSI.
1: Folks, we finally have movement on our favorite issue, This week, Biden administration officials will meet with diplomats from Iran, Russia, China, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, and the European Union to attempt to revive the Iran nuclear deal. The JCPOA lives, or does it? Michael, some of the provisions of the JCPOA expire in two years, others in three and a half or four years. Iran is already operating advanced centrifuges, experimenting on others, they're refining uranium won't we at least have to make major revisions to the agreement to make it worthwhile?
0: So first of all, Les, let me say I'm glad that we are giving airtime to a topic we rarely discuss. This is, uh, this is really good. So we've, uh, we have discussed this particular question before, and I think the answer to your question is that if you read what the parties are actually saying, uh, both on the lines and between the lines, it, none of them seem to really believe that we can just hit a restart button and re-enter the JCPOA as written. Uh, Each side is clearly emphasizing a need for return to compliance, but there's a lot of ambiguity in what that means. And really, in reality, too much time has passed in the violations, and particularly the retaliatory violations by Iran at this point, require some kind of an initial and separate agreement to even get the parties back into the framework. Uh, Rafael Grossi recently said you need a separate agreement to just deal with how Iran is going to reverse its breaches. Secretary Blinken has been talking about a longer and stronger Agreement on top of the JCPOA framework, and so it really just seems inevitable at this point that the negotiations are going to result in issues like the sunset provisions being back on the table. Uh, and even though the parties aren't, ex- you know, explicitly saying that right now, that probably makes sense just in terms of the way the diplomacy is being worked and how difficult it's been to even get Iran to agree to come back to the table and the the, the sort of a standoff that's been taking place. Um, so, you know, look, I mean, the talks are taking place in Vienna. Um, the reality is we're here because the Trump administration unilaterally backed out of the deal, reimposed the full range of sanctions on Iran on the theory that they would just sort of cave to that pressure and enter into some kind of broader agreement. Of course, they didn't do that. Um, they've broken out uranium at 20% purity. They're producing uranium metal, um, and they haven't really been reducing their aggression in the region. So um, this maximum pressure campaign didn't really deliver all that much leverage. Uh, That was actionable in any event. So in any event, um, I do think that uh, some of those issues, including things like the sunset provisions, will find their way back on the table. Um, I do think that you have to address them in order to have a meaningful agreement going forward. And I think that's likely to happen. So,
1: Jody, uh, six years ago, Congress passed the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act uh, in anticipation of the final agreement of the JCPOA in 2015. You and Jamil, of course, were the main staff authors of that legislation. It is still law, and the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, or INARA, requires that any nuclear agreement with Iran be be submitted to Congress for review and possible approval or disapproval before any nuclear-related economic sanctions on Iran can be lifted by the president. So, how does the Biden administration deal with that fact?
3: He couldn't lift couldn't list sanctions preemptively, although there may be some sanctions where he can do that, things that were put into place by executive order uh under Trump. And I think it's not even a total legal stretch to think that, that he couldn't lift provisions um that came into effect after an if you kind of use an as like the, the placeholder for what um what you couldn't you couldn't do uh on sanctions. I think that there are kind of three options here that fit into like the legal rubric of an RR. One is like mutual return. Like this is the simplest thing, but politically the least the least tenable, right? Like this is everybody, like Michael said, everybody just comes back into compliance. And then there is a fair legal argument to be made that you don't need to resubmit that agreement to, to Congress because it was already submitted to Congress. And it's exactly what it was before. Uh, as noted politically, not particularly tenable because uh, of a lot of things that have happened between uh between then and now uh, not the least of which is you know uh Iran breaching uh breaching its commitments under uh under an ARA. Option two is kind of return to compliance with a separate JCPOA or you know longer, stronger uh agreement. Like you could do part one, which is a mutual return to the JCPOA that doesn't require submission to Congress. And then, uh, agree to have a separate negotiation on the balance of the issues, right? So, um, remember the only issues related to Iran's nuclear program trigger congressional review under an meaning things like, uh, missiles and Iran's nefarious, uh, activity in the region don't necessarily trigger review under an Although the longer and stronger bits of JCPOA, you know, like a longer time frame or more limitations on, on R&D or centrifuges would absolutely trigger Inara. And then the third option I'm calling the bigger, better, right? This is uh, that you maintain sanctions until there's a bigger and better deal on all of the issues on the table. And politically, this is, politically, it's maybe less desirable for the administration because it very clearly triggers congressional review under ANR as a new agreement. But I would just say this, uh, I wouldn't take it completely off the table because if you, I think it's more feasible right now to get a favorable vote in Congress, between now and the next the next year and a half, right, so Nar allows Congress to act on a resolution to disapproval once an agreement is submitted, and the last time we ran this gambit, the Senate came up two votes shy of the sixty votes needed to vote cloture. I think it's fair to presume that that vote looks even better today than it did than it did five years ago, unless there's not a filibuster in which this this whole thing changes entirely. But if there is a filibuster still, I think it's fair to presume that the outcome is actually similar not uh, better. The administration can get a bigger, better deal and get it by Congress and be able to say that it actually has more support for an agreement now than it did five years ago.
1: So, Jamil, the, the slogan of the Biden administration is build back better, as Jody was was kind of alluding to there. Michael noted that uh, Blinken's talked about doing a, a bigger, longer deal to lay on top of this one. The Biden administration's explicitly talking about including Iran's missile program in a new deal, maybe even nefarious activities in the region. Jamil, we've heard heard this before. We heard this six years ago. We heard this eight years ago. Those things didn't make it into the agreement. What do you think of these assertions that there could be a bigger, better deal that might include these other things beyond just the strict lines of Iran's nuclear weapons program?
4: Well, look, Les, I'm, I'm heartened to hear the Biden administration talking about a bigger, better deal. I'm heartened to hear Mike Gottlieb say that, you know, uh, sunsets might change and the deal might be extended. And Jody describing the potential remote, though it may be for an even bigger deal involving Iran's nefarious activities and ballistic missiles. I mean, these are all good things. And, uh, you know, Mike made the point earlier, oh, well, the maximum pressure campaign completely failed. It wasn't successful at all. Here's the thing, though. If Donald Trump hadn't walked away from the Iran deal and imposed maximum pressure, we wouldn't even be having a conversation about modifying the deal or re-entering the deal on any different terms, because we'd still be in that terrible deal that Barack Obama negotiated. It's it's the very fact that Donald Trump walked away from the deal and it reimposed sanctions that were even in the conversation. So I'm glad. The Biden administration wants to get more. I'm glad Mike thinks we're able to get more, and I'm glad Jody thinks we're able to get more. Uh, you know, and it's all due to Donald Trump. Now, there's a lot of things about Donald Trump. He was a disaster as a president. He's not a good person, and he he stoked an insurrection of in the Capitol. The one thing you might say for him, a couple others maybe, is that he got us out of a terrible deal negotiated by the train wreck of an Obama administration on foreign policy, and he got us in the place where now the Biden administration can help fix that deal.
1: Jody, wow, Mike, I gotta I gotta Jamil. say I gotta like, say that's that sounds wow. right to me. Do you guys have a response? Are you
3: kidding me? Like like yeah, this was clearly all by design, right? Like everybody in the Trump administration knew exactly how this was gonna gonna play out. And their goal was to get Iran to breach the agreement, to start uh, spinning its centrifuges, enriching uranium right? Engaging in more R&D, more ballistic missile tests, right? Like seriously, like you, this idea that this was all part of, you know the, grand, the, you know, the grand plan, which was to like make Iran do more bad things, right? And to bring it further out of compliance and to actually put us into a more dangerous position than we were in five years ago, right? Like that, that's the good outcome here?
4: No, the grand plan, Jody, was to get Iran back to the table and negotiate a longer, better deal, Guess what? The Biden administration is going to Vienna to do? Negotiate a longer, better deal. Why? Because we're not in the terrible deal the Obama administration negotiated. If we were still in the deal, there'd be no
3: incentive to negotiate. It's also, we're also in an incredibly more dangerous position than we were five years ago. Like, Iran is closer to having a nuclear weapons program than today than it was when we struck the agreement, right? Like, you know, the agreement had its failings. I, I, I agree with you. Like there are things expiring, right? Like the conventional weapons ban has already expired. Ballistic missile bans about to expire. Other provisions of this agreement expire, you know, in the next, you know, five-ish years. Like that's really problematic. You know, we all said it at the beginning. This agreement was too short was obvious to everybody at the time that this was too short, of a, too short of a timeline, and we need to go back and fix that, but I don't think you can give anybody credit for Iran being out of compliance in such an egregious way that it puts, you know, security of, of, of the region and Israel at risk and take that as a win.
4: Nobody's asking for credit that Iran's out of compliance. What I'm asking for is that we give credit to the prior administration for walking away from a bad deal. And putting us in a place where the Biden administration or any administration can go back and negotiate to get a longer, better deal. Yes.
0: Would you think if Trump had been
3: reelected that you would be getting a longer, better deal right
0: now? No, of course not. And he, and of course not. He wouldn't. He wouldn't be trying because he had no interest in doing that. That wasn't the point. And that the point of this, like, if the point of this was honestly to enter into some kind of regional security negotiations on the basis of the accrued leverage of the deal, then there's some burden to explain why no effort was made to enter into those negotiations or to try that when the Trump administration was still it, in a position to do so. It's and very there, and-
4: simple. It's very simple, Mike, because the Iranians were waiting for the election to see if they were going to get a better deal from the weak need Biden team. And thank God the Biden team did not turn out to be weak need. They turned out to be strong need, and they're going to go fight for a better deal. So-
0: Look, well, some people. Would... I, I recall some people at the start of this administration hysterically predicting that the Biden administration would unilaterally lift sanctions in the hope of enticing and leading Iran back to the negotiating table, which did not happen, of course. Well,
4: they did it at the UN. They gave up the UN sanctions. So, to be fair, they did go a little weeks early. But I will, I will, I will grant it. Right, the Biden administration has done the right thing. They're going to go fight for a better deal, whether they give up. And, and if they don't get a better deal for Iran and go back into JCPOA, as Jody laid out, that's on the table. But here's the thing. We wouldn't even be having this conversation but for the fact that a Republican administration, albeit only marginally Republican under Donald Trump, walked away from the tra- train wreck that Barack Obama negotiated. Yeah,
3: like i like I said, Jamil, no, listen, I know we need to move on, but like that's just like revisionist history like that's like taking a point of time and be like, I, yeah, that was the point that was the point all along, right, and that presumes that you think that Donald Trump would be negotiating with Iran right now on a better agreement, and we all know that's not true, true. fair in
1: fairness in fairness let me let me actually weigh in on Jamil's side. The Trump administration, of course, deeply flawed, totally agree with Jamil, but on Iran, they were from the beginning, they didn't get out of the deal right away. It took two years. For two years, they tried to negotiate tougher arrangements. The Europeans wouldn't go along. They pulled out of the deal and and ever since then talked about negotiating a tougher deal with Iran. President Trump, for all, for all of his flaws, did hold open the door for the Iranians to come back and negotiate a longer deal. It's possible that that was only going to happen if Trump lost and a Democrat got elected. But that door was that door to the bigger, better deal was opened by Trump. And, and if not for that, we would be facing a deal that, ex, that begins to expire in two and a half years. The, some of the and restrictions that- on centrifuge research expire after eight and a half years
0: right right but right? Last- and
1: that's and that is a critical part of the deal those those it was it was a lousy deal now we have a chance for a better one
0: but also it, you all are acting as though once you give up sanctions it's impossible to ever reimpose them again which is just not true right I mean you can reimpose sanctions there are tools available to create leverage so anyway I know we need to move on to another point but the the notion that leverage is this, is this static single line that, that, that there would be no tools available had we stayed in the in the deal is just wrong. And it's also like having a counterfactual debate in order to throw a bone to the Trump administration for creating leverage now. Just I mean I, I don't right. I come to Listen, understand what the it's
3: a, it's not counterfactual. The, it's literally we, it's literally the fact. It isn't. So, they so let's, let's get back to where we should be though. Here's where we should be. Iran containing a nuclear Iran is still a bipartisan issue, right? Like as it was and as it should be going forward, right? Like let's set the precedent here that we all agree on the goal, right? You know, you want to give credit to some, you know, to the Trump administration for something that you perceive that they did on purpose, okay. But really like, let's get back to where we need to be, which is this used to be a bipartisan issue. Jamil, when you and I worked on it, it was a bipartisan issue. Let's put it back in that box and get together and do the right thing to like put Iran back in a box, rather than you know than putting the rest of us in boxes. Well, so
1: all right, so- let's let's talk let's talk about another aspect of the deal, which is the day after word leaked out of of the talks in Geneva. The very next day, the Biden administration admitted that it has begun withdrawing military assets from Saudi Arabia. Not all of them, just some of them. It's unclear exactly what. They amount to in the totality of U.S. support for Saudi Arabia, but it seems like there's a possibility the Biden administration is making decisions about its security arrangements in the Middle East based on the pending negotiations with Iran. In other words, we're gonna start using the Iran, the potential for an Iran nuclear deal as the prism through which we view a bunch of US national security decisions. How concerned are we about this administration maybe going a little too far as I would argue the Obama administration did. That's originally why we got involved indirectly, yes, but got involved in the war in Yemen, was uh, the Obama administration efforts to appease Saudi Arabia after cutting the deal with Iran. So how worried are we that this process has already begun and we're looking at another uh, set of, of potentially bad decisions in the Middle East? Jamil. Yes. No, I
4: mean, look, I think uh, I think it's, uh, it's obviously a bad situation, right? We are once again of abandoning our long standing allies, or at least at some level, walking away from them. Uh, this-
3: Saudi Arabia is an ally, or is it a? They're an ally?
4: Oh, I, I'm sorry. They have, they have, they support thousands and thousands of American troops. Sure. They have, they have. Right.
3: We just usually reserve of- that term for other countries, right? Like our NATO friends, but Australia, others.
4: I mean, I would be. I, Call I think them a colleague. Most- I think most oh, well, I think, most we,
1: could, I think we could, most we could talk, Jamil, about the importance of treaties guiding US foreign policy decisions. And yes, they are not a treaty ally. And perhaps a big arms control agreement like an Iran nuclear deal should be submitted to the Senate as a treaty if it's to have any validity at all. I think that's I think, an excellent suggestion.
4: I think most people would say that Saudi Arabia hosting major American facilities, thousands and thousands of US troops, huge amounts of American military equipment. Uh, makes them an ally. Now, Jody, you can disagree. And I know there's a lot of beef with Saudi Arabia for what they've done and, and and the horrific killing of Jamal Khashoggi. That doesn't make them any less an ally. The fact of the matter is, they are one of the most stabilizing nations in the region, helping us maintain peace and security in the region. Have they been involved in the Yemen conflict? Yes. By the way, so were we, right? Have they been involved in attacks by Iran on them? Yes. And guess what they were attacking? Facilities that supply oil to the United States of America and our allies. So yes, I think it's fair to call Saudi Arabia an ally. Do we love what they do all the time? No. Are we appalled and outraged at the killing of Jamal Khashoggi? Of course. Are they not an ally? No. Do we need them to be an ally? Yes. Walking away from them, bad
3: idea. I just think it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's not um, a suggestion, to be fair, that we you know that we walk away entirely. We obviously have. Vested uh, extremely uh, vested interest in the Gulf region, and the Saudis have been uh, a friend to the United States on the question of, of of Iran and containing Iran. I do think that the administration will have a different relationship with the Gulf states than the prior administration had. I think there's considerably more skepticism. Uh, based on, you know, Saudi's actions in Yemen, but also MBS's role in the murder of Adam Khashoggi, right? Like I, I think people are looking at these relationships a little bit differently, and kind of I, I wonder what I want to say is like, like hey, taking them more at face value. Like let's look clearly at what both sides are getting out of out of this relationship, and to make sure that we preserve our our interests and our morals.
4: Yeah, look, there's no question we should be appalled at some of the behavior of our regional allies, including the Saudis, right? But this idea somehow that it makes sense uh, to pivot our relationship away from them or our traditional allies in the region, it does, simply is not a sensible one, right? You might remember that this administration, as you point out, uh, has less camaraderie with the Saudis. The prior administration that many of the members of this administration came from also had less camaraderie with Israel. I'm not sure that, that was a positive thing for the Obama administration. And I'm pretty sure this administration is going to need to write some of that effort. And so I think that it's important that we look at who's been with us for a long time in the region, who supported us, where we have placed our troops, where we based our troops for decades, right? Whether that's Saudi Arabia, right? Qatar, the Emirates, Bahrain. We have important operations across all of those Arab nations, Kuwait, right? And it's this idea somehow that uh, it makes sense to pivot away from our allies, I don't think that's a good idea, right? Whether those allies are Israel or the Sunni Arab states. To be sure, It is important that we have an inclusive approach to the region, identify a way uh, to work forward there, and by the way, address our own legitimate concerns about human rights abuses and how how people treat their own people. And yes, the murder of an American journalist, it's not acceptable, but that doesn't mean you pull your troops out of a critical ally in the fight against Iran.
2: So before we move to our next topic, um, I want to get your take on uh, something. I was speaking with an Iranian expert last week, and they talked about the fact that Israel and Iran have actually been in a covert war now for years. They've been fighting over airspace in Syria, and an Iranian missile actually hit an Israeli-owned cargo ship less than two weeks ago. Do you guys fear a mistake happening between Iran and Israel that drags the U.S. into war, whether we like it or not?
4: Look, I think anytime um, you have an, an ongoing conflict, which clearly Iran and Israel have for have had for a long time, uh, there's the potential of the conflict to tip over. I don't think either side is looking for the conflict to tip over. I don't think I don't think the Israelis nor the Iranians want an actual, uh, you know, full-on conflict. So I think both sides are are likely to uh, to be careful about that. At the same time, there are provo- provocative acts happening. I mean, for years and years and years, as you point out, Grant, Iran has been has been uh, funding civil wars throughout the region. Whether it's the Syrian civil war by their support for Bashar Assad, or this or the civil war in Yemen with their support for the Houthi the Houthi rebels, you know, Iran has been a trouble, a trouble spot, a troublemaker for decades. Um, and that's continued. And part of the problem was that our, you know, go back to the nuclear deal, our deal didn't touch any of those issues. We knew they've been going on. We know they've supported Lebanese Hezbollah and other other uh, uh, jihadists and terrorist groups for years. And we haven't done anything about it. And so it's obviously a concern. At the same time, you know, Israel's finally decided enough is enough. We're not going to put up with Iran, uh, conduct these We're not going to put up with a uh, strike from the Syrian region or the refugee flows or like, we're going we're to put a stop these things happening on our borders uh, in the Golan Heights and the like. And so, you know, we're seeing what is not surprising—a low-level conflict. I- I'm hopeful it won't explode, but there is always the possibility of a tip-over.
0: Yeah, and I think—I mean—you're obviously worried about the risk of miscalculation in an environment like the one in which Iran and Israel coexist. You know, there's probably, some ways, less of a risk of that today than there was in the era before the kind of decentralization of information to the extent that it, that exists today. You know, the, the, the risks of misjudging the intent of, of the other actors, even in the covert context is probably lower today than, um, than it has been in the past. Uh, But that said, like Iran is, Iran is approaching a political transition. Um, Netanyahu has political problems of his own uh, at home and potential legal problems of his own at home. And, and anytime you've got that type of an environment between adversaries in a, dangerous region that uh, with close geographic proximity and a lot of weapons, it's, it's caused to be.
2: So let's move on to our, our second topic today. Uh, One 60-word sentence has shaped America's military posture abroad for almost 20 years, uh, but that might be coming to an end. Congress is working on a variety of different proposals to repeal and replace the 2001 authorized use of military force. So I want to try to go around the table quickly and, and just put the bottom line up front do you actually believe that Congress will pass and the president will sign a significantly different AUMF? Jody first.
3: All right, so I think maybe a couple things might happen here. Congress is looking at reforms to the 1991 Gulf War, the 2002 Iraq uh, and the 2001 Al okay, AUMF, right? So three different AUMFs on the table. I think it is likely that Congress will repeal the 91 and 2002 AUMF. I think most, there's more concurrence in that space. That's, that's the cane, you know, Senators Kane and Young have legislation that would do that. I, I think the question of 2001 is harder. Even if we recognize the perversion of its authorities that allowed it to cover actions in something like like nineteen uh, in nineteen countries, I, I think what you might get there to just make this short is is maybe not an agreement on a new text, but maybe an agreement on a sunset that forces people on both sides of the aisle to come together to negotiate a new text uh, in the future. I think it's going to be hard to reach agreement right now on our on replacement for 2001, but I think there's like agreement to agree that we need to replace 2001.
1: Last, what do you think? I think absent any dramatic event in the world, we're not going to see any change. I think the reality is the, the 9-11 AUMF that you described, Grant, has actually been very successful. It was uh, drafted to be wide in scope. Uh, it was drafted to give the president a lot of authority to pursue... Uh, the terrorists who had attacked our country and the folks that were supporting them. That has been what has happened. I think Congress is not very good at micromanaging military affairs from Capitol Hill. They're just not very good at it. They're good at authorizing or not authorizing. Right now, if you ask members of Congress, should we be prosecuting a war on terror in certain places, they would basically say yes, maybe not as many as there were in 2001. But you still get a majority of members of Congress saying, yes, we should kill terrorists who are out, out to get us. So I would say there's not necessarily here a problem that needs to be solved. To Jody's point on the 91 and 02 AUMS, they're not really operative anymore. I don't think there's any harm in repealing them. But I think repealing the the 9-11 AUMF from 2001 would be, would be a mistake because you wouldn't really be able to
0: replace it with something as good.
2: Mike, are we, uh, are we expecting a big signing ceremony uh, in the Rose Garden?
0: I wouldn't bet on it. I mean, I think I agree with Jody that the place where there's probably the greatest consensus, if, if you can call it that, around the, the sort of case for revision, reform, whatever, Uh, is on the Iraq-related AUMFs. And I think that when you get to the 2001 AUMF, when you look at the number of different types of um, operations and actions it has supported in administrations of both parties, uh, it becomes pretty quickly apparent that it is is difficult um, to figure out how you draft that in a way that doesn't unnecessarily tie the hands of the executives executive. And, you know, this has been a conversation that's been going on for some time now, uh, and and sort of the need to reform that 2001 AUMF, just in the sense that these are really important decisions being made uh, on, you know, it's kind of the most critical life or death questions uh, that are all turning on a, a very, very short, uh, short statutory provision that was never intended for this provision. I mean, I think everybody kind of agrees from a good government's perspective, it would be great to find a way to replace that. But it's really, really hard um, to figure out uh, a way you can do that from, a, from the perspective that I think Republicans and Democrats on the Hill can both agree on that, that doesn't wind up tying the hands of the executive. So I just think that difficulty and the fact that the current situation is one where people feel pretty comfortable on um, both uh, you know, the legislative and executive side makes it unlikely that the 2001 AUMF is going to be replaced.
2: Jamil, this, uh, this piece of legislation has been around for two-thirds of my entire life. Is there any chance this will change?
4: You know, I think, uh, I think like everybody else, I think, uh, I think the chances are very low. I think uh, for all the reasons that Mike and Les and Jody have laid out, I think the political will is hard to get. It doesn't mean it probably shouldn't uh, be done. Uh, something shouldn't be done about the 9-11 AUMF. It's now been, as you say, you know, two decades uh, uh, roughly two decades since it was enacted. Um, and uh, while Congress has been heavily involved in oversight, conducting hearings on the war against terrorists and, and associated conflicts, it hasn't done anything to relook at the core authorities except for maybe once uh, where the core authorities were reiterated in a, in a National Defense Authorization Act as part of an effort to deal with uh, detentions in Guantanamo Bay. At the same time, I do, I do worry that if they did reopen the AUMF and there was uh, a consensus around trying to modify it in some way or repeal it, because you know there are increasingly members of both parties who believe that the right thing for America to do is to retreat from the world, to step back, uh, to end endless wars, so-called endless wars, and uh, and bring our troops home. And I'll just you know note the fact that um, every time we've done that, whether it's in Afghanistan, or tried to do it even, whether in Afghanistan, or Iraq, or the peace dividend after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, we've regretted it. It has brought more chaos, more deaths of Americans, and more allied deaths uh, to our country uh, and those of our friends. And we've always had to go back in and address those threats because if we don't fight terrorists overseas, they will come here, and, and we'll have to fight them here at home. And so, you know, look, I I do worry about bad ideas too. Jody mentioned uh, the idea that one of the things that might happen during uh, an AOMF rewrite might be a sunset, right? We've seen this this problem of Congress trying to create pressure on itself to act uh, by putting substance in place. You just look at right now the surveillance laws that we have uh, that are now back to pre-9-11 surveillance laws in certain ways on three key provisions, the Lone Wolf Provision, Section 215, as well as, as, well as the Roving Wiretap Authority. Two out of three of those are, are authorities that already exist for drug dealers, and we can't use them against terrorists, and one of which uh, essentially duplicates what you can get through an, a subpoena like, like Mike Gottlieb used to use when he was in AUSA. Um, it's this idea that we don't have those authorities today because of congressional sunsets is crazy. And well, I and I dare say we don't want to walk in that situation with our authorization to use the military force.
3: Let me just be clear here in terms of where I'm at. I actually favor repeal of all of these, right? Like I do understand that this is not easy. Like it's complicated, and I do agree that the president needs authority to protect, you know, American citizens and, and to counter terrorists. I don't love the idea of adding a sunset uh, to the 2001 uh, AUMF, but I like it better than doing nothing, right? Like, so I think it's really hard to find a moment as less suggested. Like, there would have to be some compelling action. Like, I, I don't know that I see that coming. It hasn't come during the last uh, last 20 years, so like, I don't have any reason to think that it'll happen happen now. So as a as a back I kind of like the idea of sunsetting the 2001 AUMF and then forcing people to come together and to really think about what authority the executive branch has or should have and what authority uh congress should have uh in the space and how we're going to address those authorities with respect to non-state actors right like this is truly complicated as we've all recognized but I think just you know continuing to pass the buck leaves us where we're at now which is An AUMF that has been so greatly distorted and undermined Congress's authority in this space that it can't be allowed to stand.
1: One of the issues that you run into very quickly on the global war on terror is that the committees charged with authorizing war powers—that's the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee—don't actually have access to all the intelligence that's necessary to understand what's totally going on in war on terror. And, And you guys remember we ran into this when we were on the Hill where it's it's the House Intelligence Committee Hipsy and the Senate Intelligence Committee Sissy they love it when you call it sissy who have access to that information and Congress ties its own hands intentionally on this issue so there's there's it's you would have to make a whole bunch of changes even inside the legislative branch itself to get to a point where Congress would be able to make a more precise decision even then i'm not sure it's really practical
0: that's also kind of in line with the reason why reform of the AUMF is necessary. It's not the sole reason, but the political dynamics in this space generally in the kind of war powers and authorization of force are completely messed up. It's, it's entirely dysfunctional in the sense that the, the political incentives and dynamics are set up so, so that Congress basically has an incentive to not exercise its constitutional authorities in terms of authorizing or refusing to authorize the use of force, but instead kind of sitting back and, and criticizing from both sides, from the from the hawk side and the dove side, and part of the idea behind having an AUMF that's actually updated and keyed to the threat environment as it is changing uh, is the idea of having a, a sort of more responsible uh, participating role by Congress in that conversation. I mean, if you if you just look at the um, disclosures to Congress, like towards the end of the Trump administration, in terms of the exercises of AUMF authority. I mean, the 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 distance they have traveled beyond Al Qaeda uh, and and Afghanistan and Iraq is it's I mean it's breathtaking. And Congress is surrendering its authority uh, in this space. It's doing that in a way that oftentimes works to the benefit of individual members in terms of their political incentives, but it is dysfunctional from the perspective of the separation of powers. Uh, and, and having a responsible branch of Congress that's exercising its constitutional authorities. perspective.
1: Let me let me dissent. And I, I think those are those are legitimate points, but I think they're overshadowed by the fact that Congress is not meant to be involved in the day to day decision making about battlefield decisions. That is the job of the executive branch. That's why the president is the commander in chief the Congress intentionally gave the president broad authority to go after groups of terrorists who had attacked us over 9-11 and related groups. And later on, as Jamil pointed out, explicitly referred to associated forces, right? So Congress has acted here. It doesn't act every week it doesn't act every month it acted really one and a half times in the last 20 years on this but it's been significant and i would say you know there are, there are some issues but it's largely been effective the president is not required to go after every single group in every single country the president himself should be exercising discretion as well. It's better for the for the commander in chief to do that than a group of four hundred and thirty five or five hundred and thirty five elected civilians.
0: You're not really saying anything I disagree with, Les. I I just think that the notion that this is an authority that should only be exercised once every twenty years, or the no, essentially the notion that the response to nine eleven is going to dictate the authorities granted to the president to go after international terrorists from now until the end of time, seems to me to be misguided and. And, you know, we are at 20 years now, point being that it it does make sense at some point in time, Congress to update its understanding of the authorities that president can use and whether the concept of, for example, co-belligerency makes sense, whether the concept of stretching AUMF authorities to include, you know, all other exercises of authority underneath lethal. So, for example, the as detention authorities or other authorities used, uh, uh, to go, to go after terrorists. I mean, those are legitimate questions for Congress to play a role and not every day and not in terms of battlefield decisions, but in terms of setting the framework, uh, that, that future presidents can exercise. I
3: mean, I, I think the, the, the crux of this West gets back to, you know, why, why the framers gave the authority, uh, to Congress to declare war, you know, why Congress passed the War Powers Resolution. And it's because Congress is closest to the people who are actually executing the war, right? Like the actual foot soldiers are, you know, part of the American public represented by, by their members of, of, of Congress and the House and the Senate, right? That it ought to be Congress that has a role in deciding when to put our military in harm's way. What actually constitutes a direct and imminent threat to the United States? Right. It's very it's easier. The idea being, and I'm not, not particularly to any administration, that it's much easier sitting in the White House to make that decision than it is if you're sitting uh in the House uh or the Senate. And that there has to be some role for Congress in deciding what constitutes a significant enough threat that we're willing to put our sons and daughters in harm's way.
4: Well, so so I think there's a few things to be said about that. I think number one Obviously, Congress should be playing a more active role in this process. As Jody points out correctly, um, it is their constitutional authority to declare war. At the same time, Congress votes every year on appropriations that fund those troops in the field. Congress has made clear it supports the war on terror, and it wants it to continue forward. Now, whether Congress can or should modify the authorities is a separate issue. And by the way, Congress can. They could vote tomorrow to repeal modify, replace, any of those things. The fact that members of Congress don't have the guts to stand up and do their jobs doesn't mean a prior Congress should put them to the test and force them to vote by creating a sense of crisis because they create uh, these artificial sunsets. That is just brinksmanship and silly, and we've seen the terrible outcomes in our intelligence collection of creating that kind of brinksmanship, particularly at a time when there doesn't appear to be consensus uh, amongst Uh, the members of Congress on how to proceed forward. What you're more likely to result in if we go down Jody's road of repeal the ball, right? Or put in place a guaranteed sunset is the authority will go away and the president won't have statutory authority to fight this critically important ongoing conflict. The war on terror is not over and it's not gonna be over for a while. And for those people who are worried about having endless wars, I've got news for you. Al Qaeda and ISIS are in an endless war against us. Is not a war we chose. Is a war that came to our shores in a big way with 3,000 deaths on 9-11. And it's not a war that's going away. So people who want to end all of those wars can talk about it all they want. But the reality, and I know Jody and Mike know this, right? The reality is this war will continue probably for our lifetimes and the, that of our children. And so we ought to put it on firm footing. I agree Congress should act. But forcing them into an artificial situation by repealing critical authorities that are necessary now or creating artificial crises is not wise. There are, by the way, other ways to deal with this and put Congress to, the, to force them to vote. If you don't think members of Congress can be trusted to do their jobs, which for 20 years, you know, to be fair, they haven't reauthorized this conflict, although they don't have to, uh, and they have voted on every time in appropriations, uh, you could put in place a, a method by which resolutions are rapidly moved to the floor out of both houses uh, in their committees through an exercise of Congress's own rulemaking power and allow Congress to vote up or down every X number of years, right? But that the core authority remains in place while those votes are happening. That would be a smart approach. It doesn't force crisis, but it does result in members of Congress being holding themselves accountable.
3: Can you play that out a second? What you said was, if you were to go ahead and do, as I suggested, repeal all of the amounts, and there was a continued need for the president to act in protection of, of the United States, that he wouldn't be able to do so. Like, isn't it also the case that Congress, that the president could then ask the Congress for an AUMF or could then ask for the authority or Congress can grant that authority, right? Like just because Congress has repealed those old AUMFs does not, you know, in my head, you know, it does not make the case that they couldn't pass a new more tailored uh, AUMF of, to deal with specific threats.
4: Uh, of course, Jody, you're right. But they can also pass that more tailored AUMF now, and then repeal. Why should we create this brinksmanship of take away the president? We all agree, right? I think that the president needs ongoing authority to fight the war on terror. He shouldn't have to, he or she shouldn't have to rely solely on their commander in chief power, which they could. Sure, right? Because the definitely-
3: 2001 map is, is, is then used perversely. Like it's no longer really in effect. Like it's meaningless, really. Like it doesn't, what we're using it to do isn't actually related to its primary cause, well, I, right? So you actually do need a new AUMF.
0: Let me jump in, uh, Jamil. Jody, I don't agree that it's meaningless and that it doesn't provide a core of authority. It it, it provides a core of authority for the president to respond to al-Qaeda, and then that's essentially been extended out to associated forces, and And principles of international law have been used to inform the interpretation of that statutory authority. I think the difficulty is, um, and and this is where you know, yes, of course, the president always has Article 2 fall back on And in some administrations, they, some administrations might not even really care about the statutory authority for the sort of most critical type of counterterrorism operations. They might just fall back on the Article 2 authorities. I think that where you have concern and difficulty is where you have administrations really trying to stretch the principles at the core of the AUMF to uh, to meet objectives that I think people on both sides of the aisle agree are sound good counterterrorism operational objectives and principles, and lawyers are essentially tying themselves up in knots trying to fit it within the 2001 AUMF. This doesn't mean sunsets are good or bad. It doesn't mean that, uh, that, that you know, repeal of the 2001 AUMF as a general principle is good or bad. It just means there's work that Congress ought to be doing to stop that type of um, contorted legal reasoning from going on so that people, so that if it's future presidents can be on more solid footing from the authorities granted to them by Congress.
4: Totally agree. And in fact, if you remember, this process actually began, I think, Mike, when you were in the White House, where the Obama administration sort of wrapped itself up in knots trying to figure out how to fit ISIS into the Al Qaeda 9 11 AUMF. And part of the theory, if you remember, was it was sort of like the, you know, the Prince, the musical artist, uh, ISIS as as the musical artist Prince, because uh, it was the same people, but they had a different name. And so you can't change the authorities. And so they sort of said, well, you know, ISIS used to be Al Qaeda in Iraq. And even though they, they broke up with Al Qaeda. They're still the same humans. And therefore, they're still covered by 9-11 AUMF, you know, which is a very sort of I think For they sure. eventually
1: figured out that it was both AUMFs that were operative in the well, war against ISIS. It was the 2001 well, I mean, and the 2002 don't, don't AUMFs that were that. both being I mean, used.
3: You're know, right. Less is right. I mean, this is the problem with the whole Associated Forces interpretation, right? Is like every step away from the original you know, intent you get, it, it's more attenuated.
1: I humbly submit you don't want Congress splitting the hairs on this thing. You don't That's want Congress arguing with the lawyers in the White House about this, that, or the other thing. Congress is is like the id of the american people it knows something when it sees it it acts and then the ego the president has to kind of make some tough decisions but congress congress has spoken on the war on terror i'm sorry it's they don't have to do it every year because things get stretched a little bit yes they stretched a little bit but i think i think congress could stop it if they wanted to they've chosen not to it's not because they lack guts it's because in their judgment these actions are appropriate
4: I don't think that's actually true. I think that there's probably a majority of members of Congress at this point in both parties who have issues with the way the war on terror is being fought. It's just politically convenient. I think it's all about guts. But here's the thing. What you don't want is people who can't agree on almost anything trying to figure this thing out and removing the authority and taking our troops off the battlefield, releasing Hundreds of terrorists from Guantanamo Bay, which President uh, Obama wanted to do right the first year of his administration, right, by, by getting rid of this authority that sits at the heart of detention and, and active battlefield operations that are ongoing today. We are currently fighting the war on terror under the Biden administration. We fought in the Trump administration. We fought in the Obama administration. We fought in the Bush administration. We are still fighting it. Taking away authorities is not a good thing without anything to replace them. I don't disagree with Jody and Mike. We should do something about it, but we got to replace the authority before we
1: folks let 's uh, let 's end it here. Who knew that AUMF would be the hotter topic over Iran today? Uh, I would not have predicted that let's uh, let 's go to the round where we each talk about a story we 're following that 's not necessarily on the front page i 'll go first in the obituary section over the weekend was the death notice of Charles Hill, a professor at Yale. He had a very long career in national security, working for the United States helping uh, Henry Kissinger and many others. It was was very much a behind-the-scenes guy, went to Yale and taught a class on grand strategy, liked to use Thucydides, Herodotus, and other kind of classic great books of Western civilization to teach the lessons of, tr- of statecraft. We could use a lot more of that. It's a magnificent obituary. If you're the kind of person who uh, occasionally reads, reads obituaries in the paper, go look up Charles Hill in the Washington Post over the weekend. Okay, Grant, who's next?
2: Uh, If you're an avid listener to the show, you know that I've been actively following the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam for some time. Uh, This past weekend was the latest meeting between Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia. Some were saying that this is the last chance to come to a deal before Ethiopia begins filling the dam during the rainy season. Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, said last week that the dam would create inconceivable instability in the region. That's saying a lot for a region that's dogged by terrorism, ethnic conflicts, and border disputes. Sudan has recently called for U.S. mediation in this matter, and Tony Blinken and Samantha Powers should take note. To prevent this water conflict from boiling over, America needs to flex its soft power muscles and engage. Jamil, what are you following?
4: Thanks, Grant. I'm following the uh, potential coup plot that was disrupted uh, over the weekend in Jordan. Uh, The King of Jordan, King Abdullah, obviously a critical American ally in the region and a key broker of continued stability and peace in the Middle East, uh, nearly overthrown by his his younger brother, the eldest son of the prior king's uh, favorite wife, Queen Noor, apparently plotting with tribal leaders and others in the government and outside the government to conduct this coup. Obviously, a very tense family situation. Uh, Thanksgiving dinners at the uh, family household probably not going to go well. Um, after this disrupted plot may not happen at all. Uh, we did see over the weekend a, a impassioned video message from Prince Hamza uh, arguing that, um, that there was uh, massive corruption in the country and that, that he wasn't involved in such a plot uh, and telling the people that he'd been essentially cut off from communications to save for this one last video message. So we'll see how this thing plays out, our, our allies in Israel and our ally in Saudi Arabia expressing support for the king and, and his continued uh, role. Um, I had the chance uh, when I was working with Les uh, and Jody and the team at the Center for Religious me to travel to Jordan uh, with Senator Corker and to visit with the king, uh, obviously critical ally uh, in the region, and hopefully stays in office.
2: Mike, what are you following this week?
0: Well, thanks, Grant. I'm following the uh, corruption trial of Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel, which entered evidentiary phase this morning. And Netanyahu was legally required to appear in court and did so. Uh, as the evidentiary phase began, and the lead prosecutor for the case gave a lengthy speech uh, describing the prime minister of Israel, the prime minister of defendant number one. There are more than 330 witnesses that are expected to testify at this stage of the trial, which means that it could uh, go on for quite some time. But it's just sort of an extraordinary uh, proceeding and process happening. Uh, in Israel right now, alongside the elections that took place in Israel, and will be interesting to follow for some time. Judy, round us up for this week.
3: Right. So I'm following the kind of escalation or, you know, kind of growing concern about the uh, 2022 Olympics in Beijing. And there's kind of a variety of different boycotts that people are talking about. They're talking about a general boycott of the Olympics by countries. They're talking about whether or not Olympic sponsors should boycott the Olympics. And then there's also another conversation about whether or not to boycott the companies that are sponsors of the 2022 Olympics. So Fred Hyatt's editorial in today's Washington Post is entitled The Genocide Olympics Brought to You by Dash, 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 right? So this is an article or an editorial that's focused on on the sponsors, right? Coke, Visa, GE, P&G, and others um, basically calling out, you know, China's actions, particularly as it pertains uh, to the Uyghurs. Uh, this is, uh, you know, about a million people in, uh, in, East Turkestan, in the East Turkestan region, Muslims, who are being interred and re-educated in labor camps in that region, and basically suggesting to these companies that they are part and parcel of Beijing's efforts here to commit genocide against against this group of people. So, I think the other point to consider is just this is a different China than it was in 2008, the last time they hosted the Olympics. If you're a Uyghur, a Tibetan, a Hong Konger, or even just you know just a Chinese person living in China, this is a less friendly state than it was uh, than it was a few years ago. And we all need to really consider whether or not this is a country that should be hosted in the Olympics and whether or not it uh, abides by the Olympic spirit.
1: Maybe we should send our athletes to the Olympics and win gold medals against all the Chinese athletes. That would really send a message.
3: All right. We should do that someplace other than China, though.
1: Yeah, but wasn't, wasn't, the, um, wasn't the best thing that happened in Berlin in 1936, Jesse Owens showing up the lie of all the stuff the Nazi party was based on? I mean, let's let's send American athletes to China and do that again. That would be awesome. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason NatSec.
2: If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Heckenberg for research. Lester Munson for hosting
1: and Grant Haver for hosting, producing, and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.